song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Doubly exciting episode today, Dave. Oh, delicious. It is part two of our look at the Survivor Series traditional elimination match, as we did with Halloween Havoc. Uh, have selected some essential viewings. This one is obviously just going to be Survivor Series matches, uh, meaning the traditional Survivor Series five-on-five, four-on-four elimination matches. We are starting at the beginning of a look at the ways in which women wrestlers are treated in the wwe and uh and i think parallel to that the ways in which you can see what's happening in the company at a given time especially early on when watching a survivor series in a way that you can't with almost any other show at the level you can with survivor series it is uh, one of my favorite matches from survivor series history it is the five on five survivor series ladies wrestling elimination match and it is uh the fabulous moolah the jumping bomb angels who are oh itsuki yamazaki and norio teteno was that even close? Uh, I, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm also a dumb white person, but it sounded it's uh, it sounded fine, if probably not perfect. Okay, good. Uh, Rock and Robin and Velvet McIntyre versus Don Marie, Donna Cristinello, the Glamour Girls, Leilani Kai, and Judy Martin, and one of my favorite performers, man or woman, uh, Sensational Sherry. Like I said, I think this match is both a very good match uh for uh for the time not for women's wrestling for the time but for the time it's actually like a relatively exciting match at a time where like these survivor series matches are very the actual match itself is structured to be interesting and exciting but for the most part the actual action was not that great and this match has actual good action because of the jumping bomb angels in particular um they're a really great tag team. One of the ways in which you realize that is not just watching them and seeing that they're doing a lot of stuff no one else is doing on the entire show, but also uh, the way Monsoon and Ventura are talking about them. I think one of the great things about the early Survivor Series shows is Ventura and Monsoon getting to hear them work together. They're a really great pairing. Even though each one of them is kind of known better for a different team, like I really think of Jesse with Vince and I really think of Monsoon with Heenan. When you had Gorilla and Jesse, they were both kind of free from the shtick that they did with their more famous partner. And both of them were kind of more serious announcers. I feel like that while Jesse was a heel uh, with Monsoon, he allowed Monsoon to keep him in check, in line. Like out of respect for Monsoon, he was more serious about what was going on in a way that when he was partnered with Vince, he would just like roll over Vince number one, because like Vince was a, a non-athlete in, in the, in the world of wrestling, you know what I mean? And also because, you know, he liked to rib him because it was an opportunity to, to make fun of your boss to his face on TV and stuff. But I think, I think that both of them, uh, Monsoon and Jesse, even though, like I said, they're more famous for that other team, they had a special chemistry together where they just really talked about wrestling together. They talked about what they were watching in a way that announcers almost never have 
in the history of the WWF slash E. Uh, yeah, I totally, I'm in total agreement with you on the the fact that Monsoon was not just a former athlete, but a former heel. And they talk about it in a couple of the matches because there's a lot more cheating during the Survivor Series matches because there's one, there's like two and a half to five times as many bad guys on one side. There's four to five 1980s heels. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and so they get into a lot of discussions about being a bad guy, being a heel uh, in the context of a wrestling match, not just in a they're doing the right thing, but why you cheat when you cheat. And it's the one time where Monsoon actually, at least that I can remember in any real way, uh, of him being a heel, him being a bad guy, like a like a, a monster heel, in, in fact, one of the, the great monster heels uh, in the history of the company, at least. I don't know his legacy outside of the WWF. It, it really adds a level of insight that you don't... Monsoon's very surface level, for the most part. Uh, he lets Heenan do a lot of the digging and a lot of the work to build the character stuff and he kind of bounces off of Heenan but they do it so perfectly that you don't notice it where I think there's much more of a give and take and like you said Ventura respects Monsoon's wrestling his heelness and Monsoon I think respects the idea that Jesse Ventura was an accomplished is an accomplished actor at the time in particular, he's in Predator and he's in a, in a Running Man and stuff like that. He's like he has a real uh, like standing in the company and outside of the company that Monsoon has no choice but to accept and respect and treat him much more as an equal than as a comedy partner, which is what he's like with Heenan. Yeah, certainly, and I think that like if maybe not by eighty seven necessarily, but if not for his like blood clotting issue, like Jesse could have conceivably just been like a year or two removed from from being at the tippy top of the wrestling game. You know what I mean? And I think that Monsoon always took care, even more so than Vince, not to put Jesse out to pasture. Like Monsoon talked to Jesse like he was talking to one of the great minds who was at the top of the wrestling game. And I think that's something really, really special and really, really great to see. Like that's kind of an old school wrestling thing. Like it's like the like you don't say that Hulk Hogan is bald. Like I think that that Monsoon really presented Jesse not just as like a color man, but also like you said, as like he he showed respect for him as a crossover mainstream star and as a great wrestling mind who, you know, they they didn't talk explicitly about Jesse's health, but you know, Gorilla definitely put him over as someone who was who was very, very credible, even if he was a bad guy. When Jesse said he would be able to take on guys, and I could take him on, blah, 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 you know, I could beat, I beat him in my day kind of stuff. Monsoon didn't laugh it off. He would treat it as though it was actual analysis. And yeah. He didn't will you yeah, stop. Yeah, I was like, no, yeah, I, I'm actually interested in this. Though he wouldn't come out and say it because obviously Jesse like th- would say, I could take him right now. And he's like, no, you can't. Like, you're not not in the condition. You know what I'm saying? Like, That's one of the things that Monsoon was so, so good at was that he could kind of talk him down like that. Like, he would explain to the audience that the problem wasn't that, like, Jesse wasn't serious or whatever – but uh, Monsoon was very good at doing the thing of talking about, well, you know, he does a, he does thousands of squats a day or da 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 goes can go through the whole thing of explaining why without diminishing, without just without just brushing him off. Whereas like like we've said, I think when when he was paired 
with Heenan while they're like one of the definitive partnerships of all time. Like with Heenan, it was very easy to, will you stop or will you be serious? Whereas I think Jesse really kind of pulled Gorilla in more and Gorilla was engaged and focused, like I said, really on the wrestling and really on telling the stories in a way that maybe there was more shtick being done a couple of years later with Heenan. Yeah, and I, I, for me, I think it's the best pairing for either of them, though, like we said, there's way more famous pairings for both of them. Um, and I think all of that gravitas, all of that comfort with each other, because I mean, they did do WrestleMania 3 together, really comes through when they talk about the Jumping Bomb Angels, who really are like light years ahead of what's happening on the rest of the card. Uh, it's really, it's closer to early Lucha Libre for like ecw and wcw not the stuff they did later on i'm not talking about um like ray mysterio level they they had a level of athleticism that the rest of the card didn't have it was just big bulky guys and they were doing stuff that nobody else on the card could do outside of like the dynamite kid and and jesse specifically compares them to the dynamite kid well i'll tell you what i'd like to talk about for a minute to two gorilla is the women's match unbelievable (laughs) you know i'll tell you i've seen a lot of good tag teams and the glamour girls i'm gonna go on the record they're in trouble because the jumping bomb angels are something else they're championship material i've never seen lady wrestlers with the kind of moves that they got i mean they're like watching a dynamite kid or like watching a randy macho man savage or like watching a ricky steamboat with those aerial moves it was just fantastic i enjoyed it well they're young they're sensational they're quick they had a lot of fire you could feel the electricity between the two of them and i think it's just a question of time in my book uh should they be able to sign a contract with the glamour girls that jimmy hart will be missing another parent champion well that might well be where like that isn't something you're expecting watching a 1987 ladies wrestling match where the fabulous moolah is involved no definitely not i I think there's a a tiger bomb or a tiger driver in that match like an an underhook power bomb which i mean i always think of like scott steiner like that's a very mid 90s big move for a strong person and like here it is being done in the women's match in 1987 like it's and when they come off the top rope with the drop kicks they're not doing like most of the moolah trained wrestlers will fall to their back like daniel bryan does when he does a a drop kick off the top rope but like they are like one leg extended like jumping frigging karate kick like rob van dam off the top rope when they're doing the drop kicks too it's it's so cool to to see the contrast between them and the and, and the moolah crew but it's like even though a lot of those wrestlers on moolah's side were kind of past their prime at that point too or not on moolah because she was on the team with them but from her stable of people mm-hmm. but uh a lot of those people could could still bump you know even though yes. they, they were towards the end of their rope it was it was just perfect where they were good enough athletes most most throughout most of the match <laughs> to, to to take the jumping bomb angel shit and take it in a way that made it seem really devastating like holy shit, you know, uh, whoever at the time, like Donna Christianello has been wrestling for 20 years and she's never seen this move before. She's never been hit with this move before. Like it really had that vibe where in that match, it, it was a great match for everybody, a really exciting one. But like you feel like you're seeing something so special with the Jumping Bomb Angels, even looking back at it like 30 years later. Yeah, or like I said, they're really good. They're, um, they're five to seven years ahead of their time, even relative yeah. to men's wrestling. 
Yeah, exactly. They're right there with anybody on the card. It's really like one of, uh, this is not something a term I use. I, I actually made fun of it last week. This is a hidden gem of a match. Uh, at least the jumping bomb angels part. The rest of it's pretty good to pretty good, uh, especially for the the relative quality of the time of wrestling period. At least in the WWF, um, and I think like it's also fun to see a young sensational Sherry. She is, uh, as I said earlier, one of my absolute favorite performers. Period. She uh, she is absolutely incredible, and she was a really good performer, really good worker, I should say, from the get. She's or I, I don't know what she was like when she first started, but in terms of the WWF, like she she looks like her and the Jumping Bomb Angels seem like they could totally fit in now. I don't know about the rest of the crew because the a lot of them are Moolah, uh, and Brock and Robin is also involved. So, I mean, it's hard to say uh, who could have worked now, but I definitely think that the jumping, I know, uh, I basically know for a fact the jumping on Bomb Angels would work today, uh, and they would be a lot crisper because the people they were working with would know what they were doing at a much, like you said, Donna has probably never seen some of these moves. Um, and I think Sensational Sh- Sherry is Sensational Sherry. She's just like, she's timeless. Oh, certainly. I mean, you you were talking about Jesse before. It was like when Jesse, uh, according to legend, like when he got signed, you know, when he came to, to, to New York, one of the first things he did was recommend that they hire Sensational Sherry from the AWA. And then I think shortly after he went to WCW, she showed up in WCW as well, if my timeline is uh, is correct. I mean, she was really highly respected and, and, and considered, you know, one of the boys really in an era where the Moolah's girls were like their whole self-contained thing. And she was trained by Moolah, but at the same time, like she, she was really considered, you know, one of the boys by, by the other wrestlers. And I, I will say she, she takes the best atomic drop maybe ever. The only one I'm thinking of that's even close is Rick Rude, but Rick Rude does like the big cartoony tippy toe puckered butthole thing. And she would just look like she was getting destroyed. She would like let, she would come down with her ass like flat on their knee. And then she would just fly forward flat onto her face. Like she was doing a splash onto somebody. You know what I like? Incredible. Yeah. She is, she is a transcendent star in every sense of the word. Like she is, uh, they named the invitational battle Royal at the, at the WrestleMania at WrestleMania at the WrestleMania Uh, at WrestleMania uh after moolah and then everybody was like no that's not a good idea um you should probably rethink that please 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 okay you did that was very easy and some people suggested sensational sherry and i'm not normally one person that's like oh yeah you should totally name it after i I don't think people should be naming things after other people because you never know what they did uh and what what literal bodies may be buried at their place so like uh, i stay away from naming things but like sensational sherry for me would actually be someone where i feel like she almost like uh, and i hate to use this analogy uh once i say it you'll understand why uh the golden girls were like for a really long time the golden girls uh were in this space where they weren't on streaming but they didn't uh, they came out just like at the uh, at a certain time where stuff isn't as remembered. Uh, it obviously came back around, but for a while it was kind of like a club to be into the Golden Girls. I know because I was in the club. And uh, for me, it's the same thing with Sensational Sherry. She was just in this weird time where she was kind of in the Attitude Era, but uh, not at the level she would have been um, had she been just like a little bit younger, I think. Um, but I think she just 
kind of missed out. And now she's getting some love through like the WWE network, but I feel like we missed out on a lot of sensational Sherry being a performer that people like she was over, she was involved in big feuds, but she should have been in the ring working and she just wasn't working at a time where that was a possibility. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny you say that like, she was kind of there in the attitude era because like, I think of like the, the love story or comedy angle between her and Colonel Parker that was like one of the kind of main things going in WCW. And then the NWO comes in and just freaking steamrolls all that. You know what I mean? That like she, like you said, was was just maybe a, a couple of years ahead of the time where a character like hers could have been really integrated into some of the top shit. I mean, not that she wasn't when she was with Savage, obviously, or even when she was with, you know, DiBiase. That was awesome. And Michaels. Yeah, and Zeus. <laughs> yeah I mean, was- no i mean she was like involved in a bunch of main events but she should have been also working main the second one of the higher matches on the car like had been the one ladies or women's at, at the time but a uh, women's wrestling match if you're gonna have one on the card have her be it like she is she should have been the biggest star like the moolah level star she was absolutely incredible yeah, definitely. She was a great worker, just a, in every sense of the word. Yeah, yeah. One of the all-time, all-time, all-time. She, like, for women's wrestling, for me, she's on the Mount Rushmore. Like, definitely, I know Moolah had, technically had more influence over the industry, but, like, I think Sensational Sherry was more important and a much better role model for performers, man or woman. She's, a, like, an all-timer for me, definitely. So, I, I, and this match is awesome. She's great in it, and the Jumping Bomb Angels are off the charts good like for me this is one of the essential viewings to understand um women's wrestling at uh, like the evolution and the devolution because if you look 10 years 12 years later at the matches they have like they have a hoe train adjacent or or they have a hoe train while a match is kind of happening in the periphery and the entire time it's literally just jerry lawler like masturbating on television it's really grotesque the way that they treated women uh especially in the late 90s like it, kate was watching with me and she was just like what the fuck is this shit like, yeah i have to fast forward through all godfather stuff while uh, while erica is in the room i like can't stand I, it like makes my skin crawl too much like even if she didn't say anything to, to like expose her to that shit that was like popular when i was a 12 year old boy <laughs> yeah and it's because it was so geared towards 12 year old boys that like <laughs> and you're like yeah I, I but i was like i was into that but i even i thought that like jerry lawler was just a creepy sad perverted oh, yeah, old man but even watching the like alundra blaze uh birth of fame match with asha kong she that one it's a good match and a lot of I think that's also a fun match to watch but if you listen to the commentary uh Mr. Perfect is just making inappropriate jokes about like like just misogynist like not just sexist but like these people should be in the kitchen making their man food and you're like what the fuck like this wasn't if Jesse and gorilla said this in 1987 we'd be like what the fuck dude like to say it and i think it's like 1994 is just like 
it's it's not as grotesque as the pure objectification of women that Jerry Lawler did in matches involving women in matches where women were in the stands really just like a pervert like it, to me it's it's not as bad as that but it's still pretty bad you're just like can't they just be people wrestling like can't i just be watching these people and that's what you got from gorilla and from Jesse in this match. And it was really cool to see. And it kind of like makes you feel good that we at least got back to there. And now they're starting to be important parts of the Survivor Series show. Like there's a not insignificant chance Ronda Rousey might and Becky Lynch might main event this Survivor Series. Yeah, going back just briefly to the um, the, the, the 95 match, uh, with the Lunderblaze and Bertha Faye with the All Japan Women match. That match does have the vibe where, like, somebody booked it and they're like, we're going to do this great cross-promotional thing. We're going to bring in all these outside wrestlers and it's going to be, you know, it's going to be good for for Alundra Blaze. Uh, we're going to have a big featured women's match. It's going to be great. And then, like, they had the thing where they were they got to the day of the show and they're like, wait, why are we why are we using these wrestlers from another company? Like, what are what are we doing here? And then, you know what I mean? It's got that vibe. And I think that, that kind of thing comes across on the commentary that maybe – that they weren't presenting it enthusiastically, or like you said, certainly based on Perfect's reaction, that uh, the the locker room may may not have been happy, perhaps for mostly chauvinistic, misogynistic, sexist reasons. But 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 the the locker room, uh, as 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 voiced through Perfect, seemed to have disdain for that match in a way that definitely does take away from it. And it's not warranted. It's a really good match. It's a really fun match. Uh, so yeah, I'd recommend watching. We both think this is an essential. This this nineteen eighty seven match is an essential viewing, right? Definitely. Um. So the next uh, match we have is. Maybe, I think it's my favorite. I think it's my favorite Survivor Series match. It is a 10 on 10 tag team elimination match from 1988. It is the Powers of Pain, the Rockers, the British Bulldogs, the Hart Foundation, and the Young Stallions. Um, so the Barbarian, the Warlord, Marty Jannetty, Shawn Michaels, Davy Boy Smith, Dynamite Kid, Bret Hart, Jim Neidhart, Jim Powers, and Paul Roma. Uh, versus Demolition, the Brainbusters, the Bolsheviks, the Fabulous Rougeos, and the Conquistadors, uh, which is Axe and Smash, Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, Boris Zukov and Nikolai Volkov, uh, Jacques Rougeau and Raymond Rougeau, and Dos and Uno, the Conquistadors, of course. Um, <laughs> that is one of the most stacked matches, especially on the face side of things, that you will ever see in your entire life. It is insane how many stars are in this match um and like great tag teams and it's just it's long too i think it's about 45 minutes it's 43 maybe specifically or more precisely precisely um <laughs> 42 12 uh, according to the yeah oh nice um yeah but it's just and there's a great story involved. I could talk about this match all day but i, I think i want to start with the just how loaded this match is in terms of talent yeah, I, when I look back at the Hulkamania stuff, I mean, the, the tag team wrestling, when I watch it with my eyes up today, is just the best thing that was going on. You know what I mean? They didn't necessarily, oh, by far. They didn't necessarily have the angles, but in terms of the work and in terms of just the natural chemistry that every heel gets who gets in the ring has with every baby face who gets in the ring, just because everybody are just these either super experienced territorial wrestlers or these young up-and-comers who are being brought along by the super-experienced territorial wrestlers. It was a really special time and a place, and just any of the tag team stuff of that era, I can't put over strongly enough. 
Yeah, uh, like having the brain busters in this match is just it's so much fun. Just having the brain busters versus the rockers is like and it's something they did a lot at the time but it's just so much fun to watch especially in the as a microcosm in this much larger really well told story like the way the match works is if your tag team partner gets eliminated you are also eliminated it goes from 10 on 10 to 10 on 8 it doesn't go from 10 on 10 to 10 on 9 so they tell a bunch of different really really great stories but they also have the overarching powers of pain and demolition story which involves in spoiler alert demolition is managed by mr fuji and uh the powers of pain are managed by no one they're the baby faces of the time uh and in the course of the match especially towards the end fuji turns on demolition And uh, the entire time this is happening, the conquistadors are still alive. So you get to the point where I think about halfway through the match, um, Monsoon is asked by Ventura, who has been making fun making fun of his betting habits the entire time, what odds he would give him for the conquistadors making it all the way to the end. Uh, and uh, the fact that the conquistadors end up as the they eventually lose to the powers of pain, but the fact that they are the last team beat on their side is this like beautiful thing that you kind of see might happen through the match, and they like hint at it, and they finally give you at the end of this like full drama episode of television, you get that like little bit of seeing the conquistadors get destroyed by the powers of pain. It's just like I love this match so much. It's everything to me that's good about a Survivor Series match and about Ventura and monsoon and about tag team wrestling of the era i think it's one of the great matches i think it is the best uh like not well-known match in wwf history like i really think it's that good of a match no there's a lot of great you know internal stuff going on like you said like they they do two fuck finishes pardon my french they do basically what we would generally consider two fuck finishes in a row but they almost like do they, they almost make two wrongs into a right because they do the bit where uh, Bret Hart has Tully Blanchard pinned, but it, it's it's one of those dodgy deals where the ref is saying, oh, you know, his shoulders aren't pinned in the back suplex, but your shoulders are flat to the mat. So the ref counts Bret down, and then there's like righteous baby face confusion and surprised and fury, and then the Rockers are in the ring with, with Arn Tully, and then it breaks down, and all four of them get disqualified. Like, it's... It's dumb. You know what I mean? Like it's two bad things, like two ways that people shouldn't get eliminated and, and ultimately three teams get eliminated and kind of soft 
dodgy ways that you wouldn't take in a singles match or or in a typical match, getting back to something you said in the last episode, that there's something kind of special about these Survivor Series matches lets you do this stuff. And it's just a great example. Like I said, they had two things that individually I would think were totally dumb, but the way they did them back to back, it's like they explain each other away. And you, you alluded to it too. My other favorite part in this match is the Mr. Fuji turn. I love that low bridge with the cane spot where, where, you know, the guy turns his back to hit the rope mm-hmm. as a wrestler does. And right then he pulls down on the cane and low bridges him and he tumbles out to the floor. And it's like a spot where it doesn't even have to be super crisp or fast paced. It looks like legitimately dangerous because any situation where a wrestler is falling, especially out of the ring, that's different than the way they do it every other time. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Like really, really exactly. good fight. You just made me realize like what's weird about that is that I have seen wrestlers fall out of rings so many times to see it happen in a different way. You're like, what the, oh shit, something's actually happening. Like this was both a prepared spot, obviously, because they want to be as safe as possible, but it is something that they did explicitly to jar you out of your normal watching. It's it's good writing. It feels like a real betrayal. It adds like, it adds a punch to it. Definitely. I remember I got Survivor Series 1998 at Blockbuster and I had, it was too I was too young when it came, when it happened to remember anything that happened so I remember watching it in let's say 1999 and seeing that happen and seeing like the Fuji turn and seeing all of this stuff and it blowing my mind like it was one of the first times where I like experienced something new with wrestling since I was a kid like a kid kid like you know like five or six it was like I had not seen this happen. I had not seen that angle. I had not seen the the rope get pulled down. I didn't see any of it coming. And it was this like revelation for me. It's like a really, I love this match. <laughs> yeah, I can't put this on over enough. Like like we said that the, the jumping on Bomb Angels tag match from 87 feels like kind of like something just way different. But like this, this is also a great match, but it, it's, it's an example of like what they were doing so well at the time. Like it's not an exception to the rule. It's like a fucking culmination of things. Yeah, exactly. That is the perfect way to put it. I think um, if I had to say watch one match out of all of the matches we're going to talk about, it would be this one. This one is definitely my my favorite Survivor Series match. It's one of my favorite matches of all time. Uh, it's great from pretty much beginning to end. The amount of young versions of stars you remember seeing is off the charts but hart's great in it uh did the dynamite kid and david boy smith are great in it and man uh before we move on dynamite kid getting uh called out over and over again by both gorilla monsoon and jesse ventura is one of the most interesting like choices i can think of in a match because i don't know if they were turning him heel but like they're really pushing dynamite kid as a sloppy wrestler and it's really insane to watch so the next one we have is we skipped a year and we got to and this is something we talked about a little bit during the previous uh during part one um the four on four the million dollar team versus the dream team so uh honky tonk man greg valentine uh ted dibiase and the undertaker who is debuting uh versus bret hart dusty Rhodes, coco beware and jim neidhart it is a very good one it's a very good match uh, it's not nearly as good as the previous two but it is a coming out party for both the undertaker and on some level bret hart 
uh, who has a really, really great match. Basically, put, I don't want to say puts himself on the map because he had been working his way up the card uh, from WrestleMania 2 on, basically. Like, he'd been a, somebody that they talked about. He'd been a tag team specialist. And that's, like, this is the first real, like, push above that, I think, uh, because they can use that different format of a tag team, a different kind of tag team match to make him look really good. Yeah, definitely. I think that, like, one of the things that, like, people always say about Brett when you talk about Brett is that, like, Brett could wrestle everybody. So, like, what better forum for that or what better forum to show the sort of germ of that skill before he really became Brett than a match where he's wrestling all these, you know, different combinations uh, of people. No one takes a shit kicking like Bret Hart is a very real thing, especially to Bret Hart. So that's another aspect, I think, of the Survivor Series match in particular that works well for Bret Hart. But The Undertaker is, of course, the real story here. I, I think Bret Hart, that's his, like, breakthrough match for me. Um, but The Undertaker's debut... Everybody's got a price for the Million Dollar Man! So without further ado, I will introduce to you now my mystery partner, led to the ring by his manager, Brother Love, weighing in at 320 pounds from Death Valley, I give you The Undertaker. <laughs> the Undertaker, the mystery partner is now revealed. I never heard of him. Oh, take oh. a look. Look at the size of that ham hock! Check out them drumsticks, baby! So, uh, as Rowdy, Rowdy Rowdy Piper just said, uh, big deal, big deal, world-changing in terms of the WWF. Uh, the Undertaker is the first of, uh, I have read about this once, he's the first, like, Chris Webber-style power forward who can actually, like, handle a match to go off the top rope or at least from actually i guess physically the actual top rope it also has that superhero gimmick undead zombie mortician in terms of putting a character on the map uh, and this is something you you see a lot they do a lot of debuts uh especially pay-per-view debuts uh rocky my via slash the rock slash dwayne johnson is the other i think the other best example um this is something they do and the undertaker's debut is the best both like the first real version of this and also the best by far like it is really uh an awesome spectacle for him where like with rocky he kind of barely wins a match like the undertaker doesn't gets eliminated but he destroys everybody while he's yeah there. but i mean if you put some arm streamers on him i bet it would have gotten over better <laughs> One of my favorite, I'm not an action figure guy. One of my favorite wrestling action figures is the Rocky Maivia that has the like bone and feather necklace with the streamers on it. It's made out of this awful looking rubber and it like doesn't, no, no matter how mint the figure is, the thing just sits on it like total dog shit. <laughs> also that hair. It's not great on Rocky, Rocky Maivia. I'm going to keep calling him Rocky Maivia because that's what he was. Chipper, um, Rocky Maivia. You got to get a full Jim Ross name. Yeah, and it's very, it's a very Jim Ross. I love Jim Ross, but like, oh, so do I. Don't get me wrong. He does not do certain things nearly as. I don't think he calls Survivor Series matches nearly as well as um, more sticky guys. Like he works, he he talks in sound bites, but he doesn't have like a shtick necessarily at the level of like. Because he's not a vaudeville performer, basically. Like, he's a normal, 
broadcaster on some level. Uh, he's like a step before he's a couple steps before the Michael Cole, like professional broadcaster who is also a WWE character on the show. JR just puts him over as like a blue chip athlete. And it's like, okay, but he's not doing anything that's crazy athletic. He's just being like a kind of chubby guy, like a big kind of chubby guy that can like work, but it's not like you're having matches. Like at the end of that pay-per-view, you're going to have Shawn Michaels like jump off of shit. It doesn't really look that impressive to have like, and he's going to kip up after getting like hit with like a chair or something like that. Like having the rock kip up or whatever he does in the match is just uh, whatever else he does in the match, I should say, is it's just not that impressive where like the Undertaker does shit you have never seen before and you've never seen the Undertaker before. So like all it's, it's an awesome debut and it's a surprise debut. And it's, I think the most memorable of what's kind of a, a thing that they do over and over again. Ahmed Johnson had his pay-per-view debut. There's a bunch of people. I, it, as soon as you said Ahmed Johnson, the list was, was over as far as I was concerned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and like I said, Bret Hart, a really good Bret Hart match. I think, um, yeah, I would definitely consider this a uh, essential viewing, but again, uh, not anywhere near the quality of the first, the, the 10 on 10 at all. It's not even in the same, it's not even the same show, um, but it's it's a little bit closer to the five on five uh, ladies wrestling. But it's it's not it's not anything to write home about outside of the Undertaker and the mini match that Bret Hart and Ted DiBiase have at the end. Yeah, yeah, they they close that match out doing about five minutes together, and it, it's a really really nice way to bring it home. It's like there's kind of two ways to end the Survivor Series, or I guess there's a couple. But I mean, what I think of like either someone like gets really hot or two or three guys start working together really effectively and take a bunch of people out in a row, or you get down to like one guy against one guy and then they work together for, you know, they basically have their own little mini match. And I think this was a great example uh, of the mini match. This is not on the same level as, as the two matches we've talked about before from like a work standpoint, but I think it's important to see the debut of the undertaker. Definitely. I mean, the, the freaking tombstone that he gives Coco in this match, too. Like, you talk about getting your finish over. It, it looks so nasty. <laughs> um, but I would recommend, maybe don't just watch this match. Watch this match and the one right before it. The one right before it is that Warriors team where it's Kerry Von Erich, Ultimate Warrior, and the Road Warriors against uh, Perfect and uh, all three members of Demolition. Uh, that that match has a lot of goofiness going on in it but once again when it gets down to to perfect and ultimate warrior at the end they they have a really really excellent mini match where where perfect gets a lot out of warrior so i think if you were to watch those two matches back to back if you were to invest a half hour of your time into watching those first two matches the 1990 survivor series you might really be seeing uh some of the true bright spots of stuff that was going on in 1990 because it was it was not a great year for wrestling. And uh, one other thing is uh, this is we hinted at it during the last episode. Uh, this is the match where Bret Hart should have won this match, but they needed more heels on the heel Soul Survivor team, so they had Ted DiBiase win, and that's I think what stopped. If if Bret Hart also wins this match. I think it really changes the way you feel about the entire match. But since it is uh, subject to the later storyline they're telling, you can like watching the show in totality, it like really bums you out when you watch this again. So I, for me, it kills the replay value where I can watch the 10 on 10 match. Like it's for again, 42 minutes, but I could watch it 
like once a week. <laughs> um, another match I don't know if I can watch once a week, um, but it's a it's an important match because of what it the story it tells, at least in terms of making somebody look like a million bucks and also breaking up a team or sowing dissension is a the five on five survivor the five on five survivor series elimination match from 1994 between the bad guys and the teamsters worst name ever i mean i strongly believe in unions but the fucking teamsters i know diesel had like a truck gimmick too but holy shit the teamsters holy shit holy shit holy shit yeah it's uh holy shit the teamsters (laughs) Yeah, it's the one, two, three kid, the British Bulldog, Fatu, Razor Ramon, and the Barbarian. And they are facing off, like we said, with the fucking Teamsters, uh, who are Diesel, Jeff Jarrett, Jim Neidhart, Owen Hart, and Shawn Michaels, which like, holy shit, what a team. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wasn't holy shitting the talent sarcastically, just yeah. the name. Oh, yeah, no, but like, holy shit, what a team. Like, like four of my favorite wrestlers of all time. <laughs> and Jim Neidhart is there, too. Um, it's a good balance of meat and working ability. I mean, you've got yeah. Diesel's big, tall, impressive-looking motherfucker. You've got Jim Nyhart, a big, wide, strong football player-looking motherfucker. And then you have Jeff Jarrett, Owen Hart, and Shawn Michaels, like three of the top ten American workers of the time. Yeah, maybe the three best workers in the WWF at the time. The reason this one's notable is um, this is the breakup of Shawn Michaels and Diesel. And it happens, I believe, a week before Diesel becomes a champ- the WWF champion after beating Bob Backlund, who defeated Bret Hart at this show, the 1994 Survivor Series. In a good, yeah, in a good match, uh, which also involves Owen Hart. Uh, he, Diesel and Shawn Michaels caused the entire team to lose uh, against just Razor Ramon, because Diesel is holding up Sean Mike uh, Razor Ramon rather after destroying Razor Ramon and Shawn Michaels tagging himself in so that he can finish the match. Get him out of there! Shawn Michaels on the other side. Here it goes a big boot. Oh no! Oh no! Michaels just nailed the seven-foot Diesel. This is the third time we've seen this happen on television. Just a minute. What happened? Look at the look on Diesel's face. The honeymoon is over. Diesel wants to get to Shawn Michaels. He's had it. Hey, wait a minute. Diesel, look what Diesel's doing. He's a madman. Diesel's had enough of Shawn Michaels. Finally, finally, the strong to put the camels back. Look at Diesel. Michaels is headed back to the to the dressing room area, I think. And Owen tried to stop it. Owen is a shot. Meanwhile, the referee is counting. Diesel, nothing can stop him. Michaels running for cover, and the referee still counting. Diesel does not take too kindly to it. Beats the shit out of everyone in the ring. 
<laughs> just annihilates his entire team. <laughs> it's amazing. And that's after Diesel basically won them the match single-handedly. And like I said, it is a week before he becomes the WWF champion, pushing him as hard as you possibly could in one match. It's it, it's awesome. It's not that great of a match, but the part from when Diesel starts just running through people, both against him and then his teammates, is just like awesome WWF style wrestling. Yeah, this is just great pro wrestling in general because, I mean, like you said, at the end of the day, the match is really all about Diesel. And I think everybody in this match was really fucking selfless about getting that across, both the people he eliminated and his teammates with the with the angle at the end. You know what I mean? And I mean, even Razor Ramon, like he gets kind of the most faint possible win, you know, but... But I think that it, it's fantastic. It's kind of old school wrestling. They take the first like 10 or 12 minutes of the match and it's like they get the action. People get their shit in, quote unquote. But then once we get into the second half of the match and it's really go time, it is all about Diesel. And I think everybody did a great kind of old school territorial wrestler about like this is going to be the fucking guy. He's getting the title very fucking soon. Like, let's do everything we can to show what a badass this dude is. Yeah, without hinting towards that at all. Just being like, he's just a fucking destroyer. You have no clue he's going to end up be like beating Bob Backlund. Because you also don't know if Bob Backlund, you don't think there's any chance Bob Backlund's going to be champion. It's like a really well thought out way to get somebody up really quickly. Asuka, this happened to as well, uh, this style. And Roman Reigns. This is a really cool way to build a monster destroyer character. Like a just a, I mean, just like a fucking freight train style character. This is a great way to build it. And this is something we talked about a little bit in the last episode. Uh, this is where like the tropes of the match uh, and like coming down from of the, the Survivor Series match can be used to your advantage because you understand at that point like what different things can happen in the match all of the different ways that you can lose a match to have a new way to have somebody lose a match yeah definitely i i think that that's one of the things that wwe does really really well is like they have their formulas but at the same time when they decide to break the mold they don't screw around with it you know and i think a great example of that yeah exactly that is exactly that is a great way to put it they understand they have a patent and then once they're like we can't we're losing that or it's like not worth it to us to keep it the way it is they like just go for broke usually like that is why it's so exciting to see and, and this is a m more microcosmic version of this but like when a new guy gets the money in the bank contract and they've decided to like finally have somebody break through that's kind of what it feels like it feels like when they have somebody break a trope or break through in a way that they haven't let somebody else break through before it really has that forward momentum of pushing you to that next level in just one match which is not something you can really get from individual matches in the way that, like, you can't win a championship 
in one, you know, like in the first match of the season. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, and I, I feel like this is something that like allows you to condense all of the things that you have in like a playoff series or like a, a, a regular, like a big, it, it allows you to do a bunch of really big things really quickly in a way that feels like you weren't rushing through them. It's just what happened. I don't know how, I'm not sure if I'm being totally clear, clear with that. No, no, I, I get what you're saying 100%. I think it kind of goes back to something that uh, we were talking about in the first episode, so I don't want to repeat ourselves too much here. Um, but but I, I agree that like the Survivor Series used to be a great accelerator because you could do that for people. But the way the the way the rest of the business is kind of accelerated on its own now, it's like I think it's less effective in in that way, or or it's tougher to make it effective in that way than maybe it once was. But I think it before before all of the way everything was presented accelerated, it was really one of the accelerators. Yes. Yeah. It was uh, even, I think a bigger deal than doing really well at a Royal Rumble, not winning a Royal Rumble, but doing really well at a Royal Rumble. Um, I think it was like at that level. And uh, I think the best example of what you're saying, which is this, everything's accelerated so quickly that like, even if you accomplish a really big thing, it will not necessarily mean you're going to be a big deal is the uh, 2014, which is 20 years later. Um, team Cena versus team authority match. Dolph Ziggler wins this spoiler alert and nothing really happens with his character until 2018. Except he like, saved the WWE and they did nothing. <laughs> They did nothing, and he got helped by fucking Sting. Triple H's pockets is there. Ah! with it didn't put him over they never mentioned it ever again like how did they not go on some tag run where like i don't know maybe sting didn't have to take career-ending bumps and you know what i mean and like puts ziggler over in the it's insane like it really is i will say frankly like i always tell my story about like brock lesnar in like 2001 2002 or whatever but this match was a serious turning point for me as a wrestling fan where like it, it really is where I began to feel the way I feel now, which is that talent wise, athleticism wise, um, exciting match wise, wrestling has never been better, but in terms of being satisfying and in terms of like doing things that are logical and makes sense and it, it just seems like there's like a total rejection of it and i and this match is maybe more than any other the moment that that really became my dominant view of the wwe is like the talent's great 
but they're just never going to be in a position to be as good as they can or should. My question uh, with that is, is it the match itself or the aftermath? Because like my least, I love this match. I think it's a really great match. I think it might for me be the second best match out of all of them, all of the ones we've mentioned so far. But I think in terms of the aftermath, it's definitely the worst. It's definitely the absolute worst one by far. Not only does like the authority come back, they also do the stipulation of firing everybody on Team Cena. It's insane how this thing works out. It's not... It doesn't even feel like a situation where like they're building to something bigger. It feels like they had this match... And then they needed to introduce Sting and they complete, they had this finish and they're like, okay, well we've introduced Sting. Um, uh, well, Sting's not involved anymore. He's not going to be on all of the Raws and stuff like that. So let's just go back to the way it was before Sting came here. And you're just like, what? Like, no, you d- this is like one of the most seismic thing that's happened to your show in years. And you're going to act, again, like you said, like nothing fucking happened. No, it's infuriating. And to get to the original question that you were posing to me, I think that the work is fantastic. But when you when you disregard what happened, you basically just flushed the match down the toilet. You know what I mean? Like, you, you didn't just tell us not to ignore it. You put it, it, you double bagged it in extra thick trash bags, drove it to the dump, and threw it onto the bottom of the pile. You know what it like, it's just insane. And it's, it's one of the reasons that I find I'm getting like worked up here. It's one of the reasons that I find WWE wrestling, like so difficult to watch consistently because it's almost like you're punished for investing. Like anytime there's something that you get really excited uh, or intrigued by, or you're really looking forward to, it's like, they kind of give it to you. But then they just immediately brush it off. They're like, okay, nerds, you got the thing that you want. Like, now back to what we want to do. And it's just like, it's really dispiriting. Yeah, it's not that push and pull you have with an audience over, uh, like, getting the babyface thing, the babyface victory that they want, right? It's not even like a dusty finish where you're, like, doing a, uh, pardon my French, fuck finish uh, (laughs) to get to a point where you can like really want the meeting out of your hands, but also to not have the heels lose anything. It's just like, they feel like they're, I don't put this. They make it most clear with matches like this, that what we're watching is a television show that has stars and the stars are the things that matter on the show. And it's like, that is a different idea than wrestling. Wrestling is wrestling. Wrestling is not a television show. And treating one of the biggest things to happen in your wrestling company, like it's a television, a storyline in a television show where everything, in a sitcom basically, where everything goes back to the status quo, is a really bad look. I don't know how else to put it. It's crazy because they don't say as much anymore, but they always used to talk, they always used to describe the show as being episodic, right? And it's like, there's kind of two ways to interpret the term episodic. Like on one hand, episodic means heavy continuity, and it means that things carry through and make sense and all connect show to show. 
On the other hand, saying that a show is episodic can also mean that each episode is self-contained. You know what I mean? In the style more of like an 80s sitcom or whatever, uh, like we've talked about before. And when they started doing the, the whole super show concept, that's really when I started noticing that the company is really torn between those two visions of episodic television. Like we talked in the past about how like in the early 90s, you could see the kind of push and pull for the soul of WCW. Well, I feel like over the last five or seven or eight years, we've seen the push and pull over the soul for WWE between being episodic in the continuity heavy sense and episodic in the like, here's your favorite characters and here's the situations we're putting them in this week. And what's, and they've done that before, right? They like got it right during the Attitude Era in terms of at least with Vince McMahon and Austin, right? Like that is this, that is a sitcom relationship that resets to zero basically every time, but incrementally gets more like elevated to the point where the stakes are so high that it actually does start to affect the show and like what's happening on the show. But it starts with Austin being champion and having a bunch of power over Vince McMahon and Vince McMahon having the ultimate power, but not. And it feels like, and this is something we've talked about a bunch. um, It feels like the stars of the show are the McMahons and no one is bigger than the McMahons because they own the fucking company. So like, you gotta either have them not be on the show or make them vulnerable. And they refuse to do either, and it's understandable why, but it's going to ultimately lead to real problems for the company, like, if their Fox ratings aren't what they're supposed to be. Like, I have real concern when you start going on network television you're playing with you're playing in the big leagues like you can't just be the most you're back to actually needing to get a rating again which you really haven't had to do since 2000 yeah and it's like i i have concern not for raw raw's gonna last forever but for like what the future of smackdown will hold and honestly what happens if they basically bomb out their contract with fox can't have their show on when they want to have their show on right and then what happens to the stock price and does that cause a death spiral? Like they're, they are playing at a much high, at a high wire level right now. And I am not totally comfortable with their preparedness for that in a, in a very real way. And it's because of matches like this, where it's super good performances. And then the follow through is just such dog shit. It turns you off completely from some people for completely from the product. And for me, completely from the authority storyline, which I loved up to that point. Oh yeah. I loved like when, when they were doing the authority with Seth Rollins as their chosen guy initially, I thought that that was so good. Like I thought that Seth Rollins was just like the freshest and best new heel in ages. And then it just got to the point where like, he was like, all he was the champion but then he was like still also their lackey and that went on for so long that it just kind of like poisoned him and they had to restart all over again you know what i mean once again he's a tremendous performer the talent is all there but it's just their ability to create a situation that isn't all about the mcmahon legacy which as you say for some reasons that make sense and some reasons that don't make any sense does need to be protected on tv yeah 
and Seth Rollins is just coming into his own the, the level that he should have coming out of cashing in money in the you know like all of the shit that he did uh from leaving the shield all of that stuff he really like he's just getting to the Shawn Michaels of his the all-around best performer most appreciated by both the fans and the and the front office kind of guy that that like um leading actor who also like a-list actor who also gets oscar nominations kind of vibe to him he's like a generational talent and he's just realizing his potential four years later basically because of what happened as a result of the authority storyline and it starts with the idea that john fucking cena can and his team can beat the authority and the authority can still find a way to get one over on john fucking cena yeah and and we didn't even say it in our in our little kind of mini breakdown of the story it's like john cena gets eliminated in the middle of that match that's another thing that's so frigging weird is the whole storyline is about how like cena needs to like dig deep and like win this for the good guys and he fails in a way that like the lead baby face really doesn't or really shouldn't. And the only thing that would make that okay is if they actually had made Dolph Ziggler and they didn't. So it's like Ziggler looks worse. Fucking Cena looks worse. It's just like, ugh. It, it's, it, it, once again, the, the quality of the work, the quality of the wrestlers really couldn't be higher. But I just, WWE stuff is just so hard to, it's so hard to watch people like not be able to get out of their own way. And like I said, it's not the wrestlers. You can't get out of their own way. It's just like the whole WWE deal in general. Can't get out of its own way. Yeah. Uh, So this is an essential viewing in the sense that it's important to understand what the WWE is like now and why they have so many concerns and like why it's still totally worth watching for the most part, as long as you don't think too hard or care too much. Like well, you don't know any of the storylines. Like the talent's great, and any individual thing that happens might be awesome. Yeah, so I, I think uh, I think that turned out pretty well. I think we gave the people uh, what they want, which was a lot of us talking about specifics of matches and our childhood and our dreams and our hopes. I think that's what the people want. So I think we gave it to them, and I I, I think this um, the Survivor Series, which is coming up soon, uh, it, it's a really great idea that the wwe really needs to lock down and give value and stakes to uh but i i think it's definitely um one of the most important things in the history of the company and i i think that sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle because it's fallen so far but it was really like an incredibly important part of wwf and now in WWE, it's a very important part and has such historical cachet that it it raises its level to one of the most important franchises in, in wrestling. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, speaking of the most important franchises in wrestling, uh, people should definitely mosey over to www.patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W and join up as one of our patrons, become part of our sexy wizard army. Featuring sexy wizards such as Dylan Roth, Mark Masick, and Darren Jackson, among others. Nudge wink. Uh, but uh, if you've uh, liked the show, if you're dating this new two-show format that we've been uh, toying with, 
that would be a great opportunity you know show your gratitude uh by subscribing you know the one or two dollar monthly level uh we're not asking for big investments here you don't have to give us your whole paycheck you don't have to give us 10 bucks i know there's some of the big podcasts out there and like their tiers start at 10 bucks that's just crazy to me. that's so much to ask of people we're just asking for one or two dollars to help with you know some hosting fees for the podcast itself to help cover some licenses for some software and, and just really some general expenses. We're not trying to get rich here, although I mean that would be nice if you have a rich friend who you want to recommend uh, becomes a patron of ours. But uh, you know, we'd like to just get up there where uh, we're at least at a break even for the show. We're almost at the one year mark and it would be great by our birthday. I think a great birthday present for us in January uh, would be a nice covered hosting bill. So Nick, let's work for, uh, for towards that goal for the next couple of months. Let's, let's set a goal together and let's set a goal with our fans, with our listeners, with the wonderful people out there who download this podcast onto their device and listen to it. Let's all set a group goal together to get us to that hosting goal of, uh, let's call it, Nick, what would you call it? If you just needed to, to spitball a number, what does it cost monthly just to kind of keep this show hosted and maintained and existing on the internet where people can get to it? Uh, about 30. Uh, and we are about at 14 per month. So we just need to, you know, double the amount of money we're, ma- we're bringing in from Patreon, which I don't think is impossible, but uh, we are about halfway there. So yeah, about 30 would be... Um, sufficient uh and very greatly appreciated um yeah yeah i mean the the good thing about you know if you got to double a number it's best to double a low number because that that's really easy so so just for the sake of transparency you know we're, we're not trying to get in your wallet and get all your dollars uh with a z on the end of it uh we're just trying to get one or two of your dollars monthly and we really do exchange some pretty solid perks for said dollars at the one dollar level uh, I'll give you, you know, a shout out on the show or we'll give you a shout on the show. We'll call you by name like you just heard me do for uh, Darren, Mark and Dylan just a minute ago. And you also, of course, get all sorts of the updates that we release through Patreon, like anything special that's coming out, like you'll always know about it. At that $2 level, people are also currently getting the follow up files which is a really, well, I don't want to put myself over too big, but I will. Uh, It's a really great supplement that we put out each week, a lot of extra added value on top of the show that we do. Uh, Nick and I are best friends who've known each other for getting close to to 15 years. Uh, So we tend to talk in a lot of shorthand. We have a lot of shared experience. I've watched a lot of the same wrestling together. And when I listen back to our conversation sometimes, I'm like, man, can other people even follow our conversation? We have this like, twin language so two dollar or better uh patron you you get the follow-up files part of that is kind of decoding our twin language kind of filling in some of the gaps if either nick or i you know forget something during the show or we're listening back to the rough cut and there's something we wanted to add we always make sure that it makes up there in the follow-up files but the part that's the most fun for me is i kind of write a whole second layer of jokes that if there was something that you know if there was a jab at nick that i didn't get to get in during the live recording session i'll uh, i'll use the follow-up files as my battlefield for that uh, i also love uh providing links to references uh, i i always tease nick about not letting this show get too academic uh but at our hearts and souls both of us certainly are uh, kind of writer researcher types so I, I love finding news articles that are relevant to what we're talking about like last week Uh, We talked a lot about a lot of movies and, you know, I I linked to some articles about their performance year to year. 
Uh, I, I linked to all sorts of clips where people can like watch the trailers to some of the movies that we were talking about or read reviews of them or kind of see iconic images. So, I mean, when you sign up for our Patreon uh, at the $1 or $2 level, especially that $2 level, that's really when you start to see really good returns. Because, I mean, if you dug into that follow-up file, let's say now doing the two-show format, we put out roughly, you know, an hour and a half to two hours of content. If you dug in on that follow-up file, and you, there's probably another four hours of entertainment between just things to read, things to look at, things to watch, things to think about. Because, you know, we are the podcast that's thinking big thoughts and dreaming big dreams. And we're trying to bring it along to you. So you can help us out. Uh, you can uh, have us in your heart and your spirit and your, your grateful, uh, wonderful mind between now and the end of the year. And we're going to try by our first anniversary to be at that kind of $30 a month break-even point. So I invite you to join the caravan, join the parade, join the sexy wizard army. Give us your fucking money. Did, did you have anything to plug? Oh, no, just my uh, Twitter as usual, at DaveWritesJunk. Follow me there for all the updates. Uh, one thing I will plug while we're plugging, uh, we talked about Patreon. You should also make sure, maybe even if you're not ready yet to, to sign up for Patreon, a great first step uh, would be to get on Twitter and follow the podcast itself at H-W-E-T-W-Pod. It's really easy to remember because it's really similar to the URL for the Patreon that I say all the time. So at H-W-E-T-W-Pod on Twitter. Follow me at Dave Wright's Junk. Follow me at H-W-E-T-W-Pod. Oh, one more time. And you can follow me at the Nixer, the T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. You can follow us at uh, HowWrestlingExplains.Podbean.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, s- not Spotify, Stitcher, Spotify, uh, the Google Play Store and uh, Pocket Cast. Um, you don't have another origin story for um, Pocket Casts and um, genital mutilation, right? That's that's not. I don't have to. No, no. So it turns out, it turns out that that was actually uh, a fake news deal, Nick. I guess apparently Urban Dictionary is not like a super reliable source when it comes to. It's no a- Wikipedia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not the definitive font of unsullied knowledge uh, that, that that Wikipedia brings us. So what I did is I, I, I have put Urban Dictionary behind me, and I, uh, I have moved on to using Reddit. So I, uh, I went to the uh, Squared Circle board, and I tried to ask some of our wrestling pals uh, if they knew what Pocket Cast was. And it turns out that what happened was, uh, have you ever seen that movie, um, uh, Honey, You Shrunk the Kids? With yes. Moranis? Yes. So apparently that story is actually a very stark work of nonfiction mm-hmm. in the sense that uh, the, the, the special effects technology really wasn't there at the time to create the illusion that they had shrunk the family. So what they did is they used an actual like experimental like Soviet death ray thing that they had been developing for the end of the Cold War. And they actually shrunk all those actors. So those people to this day, they've never recovered. That's why Rick Moranis is not in any movies anymore, little known fact, is um, because he's in fact quite miniature. So what a pocket cast actually is, it's the cast of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids who are permanently small. And what people do is they subscribe, they pay a little fee, and they can keep the pocket cast in their pocket for like a week or two. And what the pocket cast does is it listens to other shows and music for you, and then it sings it back to you. So it's like 
you're not hearing, you know, if I put on Pandora, uh, you know, I can, I can hear the Rolling Stones uh, sing Sympathy for the Devil. But if I put on Pocket Cast, I can hear the cast of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids sing Sympathy for the Devil. So it's a pretty fucking sweet setup, Nick. I got to recommend that all the people download it. Things are really heating up here at the Survivor Series. And I got to tell you, these great fans here in Hartford, Connecticut are red hot too. And you know, when it's so hot, so long, well, that means that the incubation is all over. And that means a lot of us are looking forward to seeing this gigantic egg, wherever that came from, I'm sure it had to hurt. But this egg is gonna hatch here tonight. As a matter of fact, hold on. Oh, oh, this cracks me up. I, I can hear it starting to creak and crack right now. Everybody has speculated as to what might be in the egg. Is it a dinosaur? Is it a rabbit? Balloons? Is it the playmate of the month? <laughs> Who knows? Well, the way it sounds to me right now, the speculating is all over. Oh, stand back. Oh, look at stand the back. I think that egg is ready to blow. Oh, oh there it is. Ah, what? what is it? What, what in a world? I love oh my it. God. What? What in the world is this? I don't know what it Take is. Take a look Rod. at it, ladies and gentlemen. I know. You're looking Feathers. at me like I know what I don't know what I, it is. I, I a like beak. A little rooster tail up on top. I don't know. They got a pair of legs like my mother-in-law, pal. <laughs> Look at the feet on this thing. I can't believe what in God's name is it. Misinformed. Must be happy for you to find your tongue secure. And the promise that you're right in every one.